We are continuing our series called Emotional Intelligence. We are in week three, and uh, let's do just a little bit of recap. Christians should be world leaders in certain areas. Amen? We should be leading the world in certain areas. Christians should lead the world in the capacity to love. Amen? Real love, not, not like taking something from myself that I, that I want, but loving others. Christians should be world leaders in the capacity to love. Christians should be world leaders in the capacity to forgive. Amen? We should be the best at forgiveness that this planet has to offer. Amen? Christians should be world leaders in humility and willingness to serve others. Amen? Amen. And I believe Christians should be world leaders in emotional health, emotional strength, emotional intelligence. We should be world leaders in this area. We talked about the inner battle for our emotions is a battle we have a right to win as believers. Have you fought that battle? There's something going on on the inside and you're trying to get it to go another direction and it keeps pulling you this way. The inner battle for your emotions is the battle you have a right to win as a believer. And uh, we talked about 2 Corinthians where it says we have the mind of Christ and that's talking about the believer receiving the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the, the understanding, the attitude of God within us so we can receive that. And that can change us. We gave a couple of examples. And then we read a scripture in Philippians chapter 2. How many people are, are wondering what to do for the Lord with your faith? Like you're not quite sure what to do. I got a verse here that will keep you busy for the rest of your life. Alright? Here we go. Philippians 2.5 Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Is that going to keep you busy for the rest of your life? Come on. Oh boy. Now, I consider this verse to be a blessing. Because what if your attitude was the same as that of Christ Jesus? How much fear would you have? How much anxiety? How much insecurity about whether or not you're good enough? You're worthy to be loved. You belong. Would you have? If your attitude was the same as that of Christ Jesus, you would be strong and secure and whole. What a blessing that would be. Amen? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. That's good news. That's good news. We've talked about a few different things. You can get caught up if you haven't heard those sermons. They're on the internet, uh, goodhope.ag, uh, if you want to get caught up with those sorts of things. But let's talk about the five elements of emotional intelligence and uh, keep working through this. Five elements of emotional intelligence as defined by Daniel Gorman. He's a non-Christian neuroscience type dude, and he wrote the book Emotional Intelligence. And There's a huge cottage industry now all about that because they found out that if you're emotionally strong, healthy, intelligent, 
that's a greater predictor of your ability to succeed than your intellectual capacity. Your, your smarts, intellectually, academically, are less important than your smarts emotionally. And so, uh, there's this huge industry trying to develop people into being more emotionally intelligent. And so, uh, we're going off of Daniel Gorman's work just to talk about the five elements of emotional intelligence. And uh, these are the five elements of emotional intelligence, according to him. Number one, self-awareness. That's the ability to understand what you're feeling and talk about it. When I was newly married, uh, Trinette would say to me, why are you so upset? And my answer was, being a good northern Minnesota boy, Scandinavian, my answer was, I'm not upset! <laughs> right? Isn't that, isn't that the answer? I'm not upset! And then she would say, no, I'm pretty sure you are. And I would say, okay, pulses up, hands wanting to choke. Oh, I am upset! You know, look at that! Who would have thought? And so then she would say, well, why? And I'd be like, I don't know. And she'd say, why don't you take a little bit of time and figure it out? I'd be like, okay. So then I would take some time. It took me like maybe two hours. Okay, now I know. I understand. Okay, I'm upset because this happened and whatever and all that stuff. And, and uh, boy, to be self-aware and to understand where you're at and be able to talk about it's really, really important. It's the first step, of course. After self-awareness is self-regulation, the capacity to change what you're feeling. Have you ever just felt like not going to work? You better be able to change that. Right? You'd better be able to change that or you're just going to be unemployed. That's the way that's going to be. you got to be able to enthusiastically go to work when you don't feel like it. you got to be able to self-regulate. So we've got self-awareness, self-regulation. The third one is internal motivation. Internal motivation is doing things because they're worth doing not because something outside of you is making you do it. So, why do you clean your room? Because mom says so. Okay, Is that an internal motivation or an external motivation? That's external motivation. You know, why climb the mountain? Because climbing mountains is awesome! Internal motivation. So, if we're living a life based on doing things that are just worth doing, that we see value in, that's internal motivation, that's emotional intelligence. If we're always being pushed by other things, well, I need to make money, I'm going to get in trouble if this doesn't happen, hey, they're going to give me a prize, that sort of thing is external motivation. We want to find the internal motivation. So self-awareness, self-regulation, internal motivation, then empathy, which is the ability to understand what other people are thinking. So once you understand what you're thinking, then you can start to develop the capacity to understand what other people are thinking. That's empathy. Sympathy means you care what they're thinking. Empathy just means you know. doesn't mean you care. Empathy. And then the last one is social skills. The ability to interact with people, to manage networks, to build rapport, that sort of thing. Social skills. So, self-awareness, self-regulation, internal motivation, uh, empathy, and social skills. We line Jesus up on those four elements. How did he do? Perfect. Perfect. Jesus is as emotionally intelligent as possible. He's omni-emotionally intelligent. We'll put, we'll put another omni in there. He's perfect. 
Now, Jesus showed himself to be very emotionally rich. Lots of emotion. Lots of emotion. We did a survey last week, talked about various emotions that Jesus is shown as expressing in the Scriptures. Jesus was a man of compassion. He had compassion on people even though he was going through a lot of stuff himself. He had compassion on others even on a really bad day. He had anger. Strong anger. It was appropriate anger at the stubbornness of some religious people. He had anger. He was a man of great sorrow. Great anguish. Other ones we didn't cover, joy. Jesus is described as having great joy. When he sends the disciples out and they come back and give a report of all the great things that happened, it says he's filled with joy. Jesus is described as longing. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you weren't willing. He longs for things. Jesus is described as uh, having indignation in certain circumstances, being deeply moved in other circumstances. But there's one emotion that our Lord has that encompasses all of the other ones and supersedes them all, covers them all, and that is love. A deep emotion of love for you and me. He loves us. Each one of us. It's amazing. So we talked about the Lord's emotions. This week, let's talk about the disciples. How do you think they're going to do? <laughs> let's pray and we'll get into some of this new stuff this morning. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, that we can gather together and honor you and worship you in this nation. What a blessing that is. And I thank you, Lord, that you don't just leave us here to wander around and do the best we can, but you guide us by your spirit and you guide us by your word. Help us look into your scriptures this morning and see what you've got for us. Help us to grab hold of something that can make us just one step stronger, one bit better at serving you. Bless our time this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. The disciples. The disciples. Twice this week, in different states, I heard the same story. And I thought that was pretty interesting, and I'm going to share it with you. It's the story of Gandhi. Remember Gandhi? Gandhi got a hold of the Bible, and he read the Gospel. And he said to himself, Jesus is awesome. I need to find the people that follow Jesus. So he went to church. And they didn't let him in. So he went to another church. And they didn't let him in. And then he went to another church. And they said, well... You can stay, but you have to sit in that little designated area um, because the, the, the regular floor is for the white people. Because he was in South Africa at the time during apartheid. And I was hearing this 
being told by a South African, a white South African lady, and then another whole different situation. I heard it again. And then this great quotation from Gandhi came out of that experience, and he said this. He said, I love the teachings of Jesus. And if I could have found one person that followed those teachings, I would have become a Christian. If he could have found one, he said, he would have become a Christian. We are the light of the world. Why God set it up that way, I'm not exactly sure. But we are the light of the world. We need to have the attitude of Christ Jesus. We need to. Now, you may have a romantic idea of the New Testament church and how everything was perfect and wonderful and if only we could get back to those days. But let me tell you, they were just as messed up as we are. They were people, we were people. Jesus was perfect, the disciples were not. The situation has not changed. We're going to look at the Gospel of Luke chapter 9 and we're going to read just a short chunk, 11 verses, and in these 11 verses, the disciples make three significant mistakes in just 11 verses and Jesus has to straighten them out. So we're going to read these verses and then we're going to uh, kind of dissect it a little bit and look at the different mistakes. Here we go, Luke 9, starting in verse 46. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. So we're already in trouble, aren't we? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, being the uh, empathetic person he was, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, James and John are awesome. When the disciples, James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. All right. So we got three mistakes here. Let's look at the first one. All we need to do is read that first verse, 46. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Alright, so what's in their hearts? Are they thinking to themselves, God is good, let God's will be done? They're thinking, I am great, let people know. <laughs> I am awesome, and everyone should acknowledge it. And so they're having an argument as to who would be the greatest. So this mistake is selfish ambition. Now, in other places where this sort of thing is recorded, where people wanted to be great, Jesus didn't tell them not to be great. He explained to them what great meant. And that's what he's doing here as well. He's saying, you want to be great. 
it's going to be different than what you're thinking. It doesn't mean you're going to push other people down and you're going to get to the front of the line. Greatness is different in the kingdom of God. It means that you serve. That you are willing to welcome even the least. Selfish ambition is very dangerous. Let's read James 3, 14-16. And James just lays it out. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So is bitter envy and selfish ambition a good thing? No, this is a very, very serious problem. Bitter envy and selfish ambition push us away from the heart of God. They push us away from the heart of God. You knew that, right? We don't want to be full of bitter envy and selfish ambition. Very rarely do I go over to the coffee thing and I hear people arguing, oh yeah, I'm better than you. Rarely do I find that happening. We kind of know not to say stuff like that. You might think it. Some, some Christians might be thinking things like that. But one of the ways that this shows itself is from church to church and ministry to ministry. Oh yeah, my church is better than your church. Well, that's the same thing. It's the same thing. We don't want to have bitter envy and selfish ambition for our little subgroup of the body of Christ. We want to be for the body of Christ. We want to see God's will done for all believers. Now, what if you are better than everybody else? I mean, seriously. What if you're better than everybody else in your circles? Then your attitude can be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Because He was better than everybody that He ever met. Amen? He was smarter than them. He was more emotionally whole. He was eternal, which really, you know, puts him right up there. He was better than everybody he ever met. Did he rub that in their face? No, he served them. He washed the disciples' feet and he died for them and for us. His attitude was based on him being above us all. And so he was willing to serve. He was willing to love. He was willing to humble himself even though He, of course, is above us all. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Let's look at the next mistake. After selfish ambition, in verse 49 and 50, we see territorialism. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Does Jesus care if John gets to be the man to drive out the demon or does he want that guy just to be delivered and free? He just wants that guy to be delivered and free. He doesn't care if John gets to be the man. Do we care if people get saved or do we care if they get saved here? Amen. We want people to get saved, right? Amen. Do we want 
there to be an environment where great worship happens or do we want to be the person who gets to be up front during that? We want, we want worship to happen and God to be honored. Amen? Who cares who's standing where? Territorialism. Very, very dangerous. Emotional mistake. Remember the old westerns? There was always, seemed like this scene happened over and over again. Somebody would say, this town isn't big enough for the two of us. Then they'd have a, they'd do their paces and shoot at each other. Territorialism is, this church isn't big enough for the two of us. That's territorialism. That's don't you hone in on my business. Is that okay? Not okay. If the group of believers isn't big enough for you and somebody else, you got some emotional growth in your future. Or you've got other problems. It should always be big enough for all of us. Territorialism is very dangerous. The next one, I, I, it's horrible, but I just laugh every time I read about this next uh, mistake, misguided anger. Because I think misguided anger happens a lot in the church these days. We get angry, but we get angry at the wrong people. Luke 9.51 is where we start. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. So this is, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem and he's going to be captured and tried and crucified. This is after he's been teaching the disciples for years. And we see how far they've progressed. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village. So Jesus sends people to a Samaritan village. He says, I want to stay overnight in that village. And these are, of course, Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. There was um, ethnic differences. There were religious differences. They just didn't like each other. And Jesus sends them on to the Samaritan village. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. So since he's going to Jerusalem, they're like, what? You're Jewish people going to Jerusalem? You can't stay here. You people are jerks. And so they wouldn't let him stay. And so James and John love Jesus. They think Jesus is awesome. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Who are you to refuse the Son of God? Lord, do you want us to kill all these people? Misguided anger. James and John, Boanerges, the sons of thunder, say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Let me ask you a few very simple questions. Question number one, who are we fighting against? We are fighting against Satan. Amen? And the darkness that pulls people in to destruction. That's what we're fighting against. Who are we fighting alongside? Who's on the team? The believers. The Lord, who is our general, our authority, and those who believe in Him 
wherever they go to church or whoever they are. The believers. We are together. Who are we fighting for? We're fighting for those who don't know Jesus. Should we try to kill them? No. Should we hate them and be super angry at them because they have rejected Jesus and are going a different way? No, they're who we're fighting for. That's misguided anger. Now, if you love Jesus and somebody insults him and tramples on him and says his ways are garbage, it's going to bring something up in you. And it brought something up in James and John and they were like, Lord, do you want us to just break down fire? But that's misguided anger. What, you're, what you should try to experience if you can get above the whole thing is, wow, these people need the Lord. They need a touch from God. They're, they're in trouble. They're setting themselves up for some difficulties. Have compassion and love. Misguided anger is, man, it's caused us problems. Imagine if we could love those people who we were fighting for. That would be a public relations benefit for us, wouldn't it? It would be super helpful. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Jesus said we we're supposed to love God. He said we're supposed to love our neighbor. He said we're supposed to love our brother, which means fellow believer, male or female. And he said we're supposed to love our enemy. That's love your enemy. He's your enemy for a reason. How do we love our enemy? We're going to quickly read through Matthew chapter 5, 43-48, and I want to look for two tangible things. Two tangible ways to love your enemy. Because if we're going to put this into practice, we need to know what he's talking about. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So there's tangible number one. Is somebody actively hurting you? Pray for them. This will accomplish two really, really important things. Number one, it will guard your heart and will keep you from becoming hard. Because this is something we'll cover in the weeks to come. The Lord said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Being in the presence of wickedness, having wickedness directed at you and those you love, hurts your heart. And it can callous it and cause your love to grow cold. When you pray for those who persecute you, it guards your heart and protects you from turning calloused and cold. Also, when you pray for those who persecute you, it allows the hand of the Lord to touch them and they may respond. They may have a heart change. Something might happen for them. They may be rescued from the error of their way. Those are all good things. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Now, the worst people in the world are friends with their friends, right? How much does it take to be friends with your friends? Nothing. Nothing. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So tangible number two, greet those outside of your circle. 
Greet those that you have tension with. Um, like Samaritan and Jew in the situation there. Jesus was trying to connect with people outside of his circle. Didn't turn out that well, so he just went somewhere else. I was talking to the youth group about this, and I was thinking they were going to talk about different cliques. You know, you got the geeks and the jocks and the whatevers, all the different people. I don't know if it's the same as it was back in the day, but, uh, you know, I thought they were going to talk about their different groups, and they said, oh, no, it's, it's between the, the kids and the adults. That's the problem. You know, this is the principal and the teachers, and they hate me and all that, you know, all this stuff. I'm like, well, they probably don't hate me, but maybe they're irritated. Uh, so what's the tangible? If we've got these tensions between groups, what's the tangible? Greet them. So you come up to your teacher, hi, Mrs. Johnson, how are you doing today? I hope you're having a good day. You know, isn't the, isn't the weather nice for October? You can go take your seat and have your class. Greet them. Break those barriers by interacting. Pray for those who persecute you. Greet those outside of your group, even if there's tension. Misguided anger is a big, big danger. So we want to avoid selfish ambition, territorialism, and misguided anger. Instead of misguided anger, we love our enemies, we pray for those who persecute us, and we cross the lines of groups where there's tension. I'm going to close, and I want to bring the uh, prayer team up. feels like I could preach for an hour. I'm not going to. Praise God. I want to talk about one more thing. We've got the prayer team coming up here. and They're going to be here to pray with you uh, when, we, when we conclude. But let's talk about one more thing before we're done. Let's talk about the capacity to forgive. It takes significant emotional strength to forgive. It's not easy. It's not really a choice. Have you ever tried to forgive and not succeeded? It's more of a, a thing we attain to spiritually, being able to forgive. It's a, it's a place we can get. But that's the attitude of Christ. To forgive those who have wronged us. We're going to read in uh, Colossians chapter 3. This is an amazing, amazing scripture. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is the NIV. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have. Does it sound like Paul wants to know the details? You got grievances, whatever they are, just forgive them. He doesn't care about the details. He doesn't want to know. He knows there's tensions and difficulties and struggles and people do things wrong. 
Whatever it is that you're involved in, that whatever's been done wrong to you, just forgive it, whatever it happens to be. He doesn't even care. Now the Lord cares what's going on in your heart, the pain you're feeling, the experiences that you're having. He has compassion on you and He loves you, but He wants you to be free. And freedom comes from forgiveness. But it can be difficult again. We're going to pray here in just a minute and I want you to search your heart for unforgiveness. And now, hopefully... I'm not talking about unforgiveness in the sense of the person didn't do anything wrong. You just have misguided anger. You just need to you know, get past that, man. But I'm, what I'm talking about is you have actually been wrong. You have actually been hurt. The damage has been done to you. It wasn't fair. Now you've got to forgive. That can be hard. But there's freedom in forgiveness. There's guarding your heart in forgiveness. Look and see. Is there unforgiveness? Why do we forgive? We forgive because the Lord forgave us. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And Jesus died on the cross for everyone who sinned against him. I need to receive that forgiveness from me. And I need to agree with it from them. And offer it. Because I'm a follower of the living God. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So let's pray. And I believe for some freedom in this place. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and we honor you. Thank you for the love you've shown us, for the forgiveness you've offered us. And again, Lord Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross for our sins, that we could be forgiven and we receive that. But Lord, we agree with that for those in our lives who have sinned against us and those we love. We agree that you dying on the cross for them was the right thing to do. Forgiveness and freedom is is good. Lord, show us in our hearts where we're harboring unforgiveness and help us to grow so that we can be free to forgive and have our hearts softened again so that we can experience all of these wonderful emotions that we can love, we can have compassion, and we can have peace without fear. Bless us, Lord. Lord, for those who are dealing with something right now, I pray you give them the strength to be able to work through it, however long that may take. Let them not give up, but let them continue to seek you and continue to grow as they battle through that process. And Lord, I pray a blessing over each one that's in this place. Lord, let your peace be upon us. Let your strength be with us. And let your love flow through us. Lord, that your light may shine in this world. We give you praise. We honor you in this place. You are so good. So good. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Well, you're free to come down for prayer. It invites you down. Otherwise, you're dismissed. Say hi to somebody you don't know. Encourage them in the Lord before you leave.